Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Good morning, GT family. How art thou? Felt like I would just greet you in King James lingo here this morning as the Spirit leads. So, awesome. I just want to reiterate something that Pastor Steve said. Um, Next week, Family Sunday, uh, we do those, um, I think, five or six times a year where we have all the the kids in with us. And I, I know as a parent of three uh, kids, mine are older now, but I remember those, those years when they were young and uh, keeping kids kind of corralled at times and focused or at least distracted at times uh, can be a challenge. And we come to church and there's a opportunity uh, sometimes for a little bit of a break. I, I get that. But we believe at GT in the power of family. We believe that the, probably the most important thing we do is that we are a family church committed to multi-generations here at GT. And so uh, we believe that Family Sunday is an opportunity for us to really uh, model to our kids what it means to belong to a church, what it means to worship Jesus, what it means to do communion and come to the table together and hear the word and be encouraged by it. And so I, I encourage you uh, that, that prioritize those Family Sundays. Those are very important. And uh, we're okay if the kids are loud and noisy at times. We're, we're okay with that because we believe that even if they don't understand everything that's happening in here on a Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit is present in our midst and he is doing something uh, to bring about uh, just a, a true transformation in their hearts and lives. And so uh, it's going to be a great time. Well, I got to go to the U.S. this past week. Uh, on Tuesday, we headed out and uh, for the American Thanksgiving and got to spend time with my my family and my wife's family, and I uh, did Thanksgiving twice on uh, Thursday there, so lunch, and then I said, I'm done, I won't eat anything for dinner, until dinner showed up on the table, and then <laughs> I partook of thy goodness, and uh, yes, I did have my deep fried Cajun turkey, and it was just as good as I remember it, so it was an incredible time, but always good to be with family and spend time with family, but good to be back. We drove in last night. And as we're coming into Burlington here, we just felt like, man, it's so good to be back in Burlington. And we are excited about the days ahead. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 9. As Pastor Steve mentioned, we are starting a new series uh, called Advent. And this is something we do with the church calendar every single year around the Christmas season. Um, where we really focus in on these four weeks leading up to Christmas on really just the idea of Christ has come. He did come 2,000 years ago, and we also believe he is coming again at some point in time, space, and history. And this word advent, it simply means this. It speaks of the idea of arrival, of appearance, and of coming. And specifically, it deals with the arrival of Jesus that is called the incarnation of God. And that word incarnation simply means the embodiment in the flesh of a deity, a spirit, or an abstract quality. It means to live amongst or to dwell within. And so in the Christian uh, church for 2,000 years now, uh, this idea of Advent has been connected to the idea that we celebrate in the season that Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, who was in the beginning, before the beginning, began to begin, say that three times really fast, Jesus, the eternal one who was in creation and also involved in new creation, he did in fact come to the earth in the form of man 
and the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, the expected one, he lived and he dwelt among us. He lived amongst the people. He ate amongst the people. He did life in the midst of a people. And he experienced everything that we as human beings experience, including suffering and hardship. And he experienced this to the fullness. And he was with us in the midst of these times. Now, the historical context of Isaiah chapter 9, to kind of build this up to our theme verse here today, the book of Isaiah speaks to a people living in three time periods. Before the Babylonian exile, during the Babylonian exile, and then after the Babylonian exile. In chapter 9, Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah before the Babylonian exile. Israel and Syria are pressuring Judah to form a coalition against Assyria. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is afraid to go against Assyria, so he sends a king's ransom to Assyria asking for their help. Isaiah speaks into the situation where Judah felt powerless in this moment. And the people of Judah, they were afraid of the rulers of their north. And as their enemies only seemed to grow in strength and tighten their grasp, they began to wonder if God was in fact for them, or if God in this moment might be against them. And many began to wonder, did God abandon them? And among Isaiah's prophecies that we're going to focus in on here in this Advent series, it deals with the future defeat, the exile, and return, but he also includes two prophetic visions of a child who would represent God's presence, embody his characteristics, and bear the responsibility of governing his people. So this is the historical context of the book of Isaiah and the passage that we want to focus in on for four weeks here is that the prophecy is about there is one who is coming who will come in the form of a child and it will be significant that God is present with us. He has not abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. That this child will embody the heart and the virtues of God himself. And this child will bear the responsibility of governing his people. And so the big idea in the book of Isaiah and these prophecies is simply this, that there is a promise of a light that shines beyond the darkness. There is a promise of a light that shines beyond the darkness. There's a famous phrase, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like there was no light, there was no way out, it was all dark around, but then there's this thing that happened that just gives you a little glimmer of hope. This is what the prophecies of Isaiah are about to the people of Israel and their context. Their enemies surround them. Things are looking dark. Things are looking bleak. It's going to be challenging days ahead. But the prophecies come and they give the people of Israel a little glimmer of hope. There is one who is to come. Yes, these are dark days. And yes, there are challenging days ahead of us. But there is a light that shines beyond the darkness. Let's put our hope and trust in the light of the world that we sung about here this morning. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Very familiar passage of scripture here found in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And it says this, For to us 
a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated here today. Now, over the next four weeks, we are going to look at what some have called the four names of the Messiah. And the four names of the Messiah, as revealed here in Isaiah chapter 9, are that the Messiah will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And the big thread that I want us to focus in on over these next four weeks is we're going to look at these names and break them down individually But in each of these names, we're going to see revealed essentially this idea of how Jesus became king. Everyone say that. Jesus became king. Now everyone say this. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He became king, but Jesus is also king. Now next week, Pastor Cheryl, she's going to break down wonderful counselor. Pastor Steve, the week after, will be dealing with Prince of Peace. But this morning, I want to deal with this title called Mighty God. Now this word mighty, gibber in the original language, it speaks of the idea of a mighty man or a warrior. Speaks of one who is brave, who has boldness, who is uh, valiant in their efforts. And so the royal name of mighty God is what is known as a sacral title given to the king. In fact, in the Hebrew scriptures, it was common for a king to be attributed with power and authority to be somewhat of a representation of God to the people. So this was common in ancient cultures, that kings were supposed to be representative of their gods. And so the prophet Isaiah says, there's a child who is coming that we need to put our hope and trust in, and he will become king, and he will be a good king, and he will be a perfect representation of Yahweh, the one true God. This is why the writer of Hebrews would correlate the idea of that and say that long ago God spoke through many people, the patriarchs and the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by this child, by the son, who is the perfect representation of what God is like. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says the sacral identification of the king as carrier A divine power indicated that the king bore responsibility for the prospering of the entire realm that would be marked by shalom. Thus, an effective king would assure that his realm would be marked by victory in war, by success in economics, by productivity in agriculture, and by justice in social relations. That's what it meant to be a successful King. Now, real quickly here, a little sidebar. It should be noted that the scriptural requirements for the kings of Israel always involve justice, but also justice for the poor. And so Advent has always been about God's generosity to those who are oppressed, 
to those who are poor, to those who are struck down, to those who are weak, to those who are held captive, to those who are considered outcasts. And so Advent has always been about God being generous to these types of people. And so the arrival of King Jesus is meant to be good news for them. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4, it says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. The psalmist will go on in verses 12 and 14 and say, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And so in the Old Testament scriptures, this was a common understanding that the king was meant to be one who cared for the oppressed and cared for the poor. Now this carries on in the New Covenant community where God makes clear that anyone who tries to be dishonest or stingy in regards to the generosity that the people of God are supposed to be functioning in will be judged by God. Now in today's culture, we often hear uh, kind of a contrast about the idea of the God of the Old Testament versus Jesus of the New Testament. Anybody ever heard this contrast before? And how the God of the Old Testament sometimes reflects a certain thing, but the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus sometimes re reflects something different. And I think it's actually a terrible contrast because I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there is a continuity between both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And yes, Jesus was the full representation of what God is like, but what we see even in the New Testament, Jesus also cares for generosity to those that are in need. In fact, he cares so much that there's serious judgment in the New Testament towards the people of God when we don't reflect the generosity that each and every one of us have also received. Think about Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 2 and 4 reveal the generosity of the New Testament community. Acts 5 reveal Ananias and Sapphira being deceitful about generosity and trying to manipulate the people of God. And in a moment, what happens? They're judged. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is speaking about communion amongst the people of God. And we read that passage of scripture often in times of communion, but it's actually a rebuke. It's a strong correction that when you gather together, don't pander to the rich and then neglect the poor. By the time that the poor arrive, the rich are so drunk on the elements. That's really what's happening here. It's all kinds of dysfunction. And so Paul says, if you, if you function that way, you, you too, you also will be judged. And so this promise, this prophecy that, that Isaiah gives, it speaks about this king that is coming in the form of a child who will be a good king, who will also care for those that are poor, that are weak, that are oppressed, for those that are in need. And this king will reflect the generosity 
of God's heart towards his people. And if he reflects the generosity towards his people in which he freely gives it, then the people of God must also be a people that reflect generosity towards those that are in need. So often in this Christmas season, we hear this phrase a lot. It's better to give than to receive. But as a child, I didn't believe that. And unfortunately, sometimes even as adults, we still wrestle with that, don't we? Do you remember Christmas Day? Do you remember how excited you were as a child? Do you remember sneaking downstairs to the tree in the middle of the night to see what kind of presents uh, magically showed up in that moment? I remember the year that I got my first bass guitar and my dad was a lazy rapper, so he didn't rap it. And I remember sneaking down at 3 a.m. and seeing that bass guitar leaned up against it. It was a Fender P bass. It was a beautiful, beautiful P bass. I was so excited as a 12-year-old kid. I got a bass guitar. I couldn't sleep for the rest of the night. There was so much anticipation over over that which I was about to receive, not what I gave. And I know that there's a joy in that as children, but the truth is, many times in this Advent season, we get so consumed by that which we receive, rather than be consumed about the real purpose of Christmas and Advent is all about generosity, especially to those that are in need. And we can't escape this in the Old Testament scriptures, that with the celebration of the arrival of this king is meant to be a focus, a resolute focus on God is a good and generous God towards his people. So you, as his people, must be good and generous in all that you do. Christmas is really all about giving so much more than receiving. Now, real quickly, I just want to focus in on how Jesus actually reveals himself as this king by displaying his mighty deeds. Number one, we see this, that Jesus displays power over unclean spirits. As you read and study the the gospel narratives, you see that over and over again. King Jesus is king because he displays power over the unclean spirits. Number two, King Jesus displays power over chaos. In fact, that's a very big theme in the scriptures, Old Testament to New Testament, that Jesus has come to bring order to the chaos. And then thirdly, King Jesus displays power over death. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 28, it focuses in on this theme of how Jesus displays power over unclean spirits. I want to read it here. It says, and they went into Capernaum, And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Understand this. In the first century context that Jesus lives and dwells in, there were many teachers. There were many good teachers. There were many profound teachers. But there was something different about the teaching of Jesus. That he taught as one who had authority. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Note this, even the demons recognize who Jesus is. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. That he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now I want us to see this. That Jesus displays power over unclean spirits. And what we see in this text here in Mark 1 is that Jesus didn't just teach concepts about what it meant to be free. He set the captives free. Big difference. This is why he is one teaching with authority. Jesus comes on the scene. He comes in the form of Advent. He arrives. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one that Israel has been hoping for and anticipating. When will he come? And he comes and he doesn't just teach concepts about what it means to be free. He liberates his people. He sets them free. He casts out the unclean spirit that is oppressing this person here in Mark 1. And this is why Jesus is the mighty God. This is why Jesus is the valiant warrior. Because he has authority over every unclean spirit. As we talked about in our last series, that how so many times the people of Jesus' day, they thought their oppressors were the empire. And the empire was pretty oppressive in that day. But Jesus comes and says, there's a, there's a deeper, darker oppressor. And it's not the empire of Rome, but it's the oppressor of sin and the devil in your life that is controlling you, that keeps you bound. And Jesus says, I have come. My arrival is here to reveal you don't have to be bound by that anymore. Jesus didn't just teach about how God was all-powerful. He put on display the very power of God. He didn't just teach for the purpose of giving people information. He taught and demonstrated the kingdom for the purpose of people experiencing transformation. When we gather here together as a corporate body and we we worship together, and we open the Holy Scriptures together. My heart is that you wouldn't just leave this place full of information about God. My heart is that the Holy Scriptures would do something in each and every one of our lives that leads to a transformed life. And so Jesus is king because when he teaches, he teaches with authority, and he has authority over every unclean spirit. I think so many times in the Western church, we are so consumed by information, information, information. And we often miss that it's not just about information. It's about his spirit coming and setting this captive free and liberating this person and liberating us as his people. My mentor who went home to be with Jesus this past week on uh, Monday he used to always say, because he worked a lot with the underground church in China, he said, Tim, in America, you have more conferences on prayer than you can shake a stick at. In China, we just pray. 
And many times we're so consumed about the next conference, about, about the next revelation, about the next piece of information, the next formula. But that's not what the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be about, just information increase. It's about, no, we are a people that Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord of our lives and he is ridding us of every unclean spirit. And we're not just learning about God, but we're learning to deeply know God in his very presence. Secondly, Jesus displays power over chaos. In Mark 4, 35 through 41, it says, on that day when, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, Jesus spoke to the storm and brought peace, or he brought order. The word shalom in the Hebrew language is not just peace in the sense of a feeling or an emotion. The word shalom is actually connected to order. It's the reflection of the earth in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. There was perfect order. There was perfect relationship between God the creator and his creation. There was no sickness, there was no death, there was no calamity. There was harmony in the earth. There was justice in the earth because there was no injustice in the shalom of God. And so we see this, that Jesus, he speaks to the the storm and he brings order in the same way that God spoke order into the chaos of the world in Genesis 1. You see, storms within creation represented forms of chaos within the cosmic world to the Hebrew people. And the idea was that they were not the intended order for the earth. So by Jesus displaying his power over storms, he is revealing himself as the mighty God that Isaiah prophesied about. So there's this storm, there's a lack of order, there's all kinds of chaos, Jesus isn't threatened by the storm, isn't threatened by the chaos. He wakes up, and what does he do? In the same way that God spoke order to the chaos of our formless and devoid world and created, Jesus, in that moment, speaks order to the storm and the chaos. And even the storms have to obey him. Beloved, this is a beautiful element about Advent, that in the midst of of storms of life, in the midst of the chaos of this world. Have you noticed our world is a little chaotic today? In the midst of the chaos even of this season, Jesus came and he is continuing to come so that he may bring the shalom of God, the order of God into our lives. He has arrived and he's still arriving 
because he desires you to experience his divine order. Jesus wants to put things right in your life. Where you feel like you have absolutely no control, which is actually not a bad thing, because it's in that place where you feel like you have no control that you can actually surrender over all control and say, take it for me, Jesus. We must see that he desires to bring stability and order to our lives. Where we have a lack of peace, he desires for you to experience peace. Where we have fear and anxiety, he desires to help heal us from that fear and anxieties and bring us into wholeness and health. Jesus has power over the chaos. He was in the beginning helping the Father bring order to the chaos. And I would propose to you here this morning, he is still here today speaking, bringing order to the chaos of our world and also to the chaos of our own individual lives. So Jesus as king is all-powerful. He is brave. He is valiant. And he is here to set things right in a world full of chaos. He isn't just a carrier of divine power. He is the divine power. He isn't just a representative of heaven. No, heaven is fully embodied in him. Greg Boyd said this, while the whole cosmos was originally created good, at some early point, Something went profoundly wrong at a structural level. Only God's fighting on our behalf preserves the order of the world. Advent is about God fighting on our behalf by sending the child, by sending the son, by sending the Messiah, and essentially saying, enough is enough with the chaos of the world. And Advent is about God deciding to begin to make all things new in us and also in the world in which we live. Beloved, God fights for us. No, I don't think we're hearing that here this morning. God fights for you. Like that should be the thing that solidifies shalom in our lives. As Paul said, if God be for us, who could be against us? If God is for his people, if God is for his children, if God is fighting on our behalf and Advent reveals that, what do I have to worry about? Why would I be consumed by the temporary hardships and sufferings of this world if I know the eternal, mighty God, the valiant warrior, is fighting on my behalf? God fights for you. And Advent is a time to remind us God is still fighting for his church and fighting for his children. So step back and rest in the goodness and shalom of God, knowing he's got this. He's got this. He's got this. He is true to his word. He is true to his promises. Thirdly, Jesus displays power over death. And I close with this one here today. In Matthew 2, verses 13 and 23, it speaks about the birth of Jesus and then 
Joseph and Mary having to escape Herod, who put out a decree to kill all the young baby boys. So in Matthew 2, we see that Jesus escapes death. In John chapter 10, the Pharisees, they try to seize him in order to kill them, but somehow he escapes death in that moment. As you read the Gospels, and you see the narrative, you see the story progress, you hear about Jesus escaping death over and over again, but it becomes clear, it becomes inevitable that Jesus will experience death. He says it. He prophesies about it. He makes it clear to his followers. You see it in the reflection of his prayers. You see this idea that death is inevitable even for Jesus. You know, I think we're living in a time right now where I don't know about you, but death, when I was younger, was kind of like a a very much foreign concept. But right now, in this cultural moment, I see it at the forefront of my mind because I see it all around us. Many of you in here lost loved ones in the last couple of years. And those were difficult years because some of you weren't even able to grieve properly or have proper closure. So there's that wrestling of the brutal reality of death that is inescapable for every one of us. As I mentioned, my mentor went home to be with Jesus. He had been sick for a while, so we knew it was coming. We expected it was coming at some point. But still, when it happens, it just has a way of gripping you, doesn't it? Because death is that thing that we can't seem to shake. We may escape it at times, but it's inevitable that if Jesus doesn't come back before, then every single one of us will die. And I think this season has actually reminded us of that truth. Life is but a vapor. It's so temporary. It's only for a moment. So as you read the Gospels, eventually Jesus stops escaping death like every human being, and he actually experiences death to its fullest. And this is important for us, because the reason Jesus is crowned king and given the name Mighty God It's not because he goes on escaping death like some religions have taught. But he is given the name from Isaiah 9, mighty God, because ultimately he experiences death, but then he conquers death by resurrecting from the grave and destroying the very power of death. You see, Jesus is a good king because he knows what it's like to be us and experience death. Injustice. He knows what it's like to suffer. His life was not exempt from suffering and hardship. You think about Hebrews 4. He's the great high priest because he experienced everything that we ever experienced. And this is important for any leader. Have you ever been under a leader that you felt like they were so devoid of reality? Don't name their names. We've all been there. Where they live in a bubble and you think you have no idea what it's like to be the average citizen or the average person or the average student or the average worker in this company. You have no idea. You live in this bubble. You don't 
live in reality. And yet our king, the child, the promised Messiah for Israel is not one who lived a life devoid of reality. He even experienced that final enemy called death. He knows what it's like to suffer. But he's also a mighty king because he knows what it's like to conquer injustice and set things right. Death was never the intention and heart of God. It is the result of the fall and sin of mankind. And yet Jesus comes and he experiences death, not for his sin, but for the sins and the brokenness of the world. But when he raises on the third day, when he comes up out of that grave, he ushers in this moment of resurrection power where the great enemy, the great injustice of death is conquered once and for all. And his desire is to do this for his people, for all who follow and trust in his kingdom. He does not promise us a life exempt from suffering or death. He promises us a life to the fullest that does not have to be bound by fear of suffering or death because we have experienced the power of resurrection in our lives as well. It's what he promised, and it's what the children of Israel anticipated and expected. It's what happened because of that first advent, because Christ came, because he arrived, because he showed up on the scene, and he is the embodiment of heaven, but he is also the embodiment of mankind. He experiences all suffering, and he conquers it at the grave once and for all. And he gives us a promise that in the here and now, no matter what we face, no matter what hardship, no matter what suffering we experience, we can have resurrection power. We can be liberated from fear of death because we know we have an eternity with Jesus. We can be liberated from the fear of death because we know where we spend our eternity when we put our faith, hope, and trust in him. We, put, we spend our eternity with the one true king. And we can look forward to a second advent, a second coming, a second arrival, where what he begun in the first advent, he will complete in the second advent, and where he is beginning to make all things new. In a moment, everything will be made right. And there will be no injustice in the world. There will be no sickness in the world. There will be no war and famine. There will be no poor. For we will all dine at the table of the eternal king and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will be one people. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is king. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Because our hope 
is not in living a life where we escape death. Our hope is in the resurrection power that Jesus provides for us. Oh, this earthly body may get sick. This earthly body may die. But my eternal soul will live with Jesus forever. The one true king. The good king. The righteous king. The mighty king. The valiant warrior king. The one who is fighting on our behalf here this morning. So because Jesus is king, and I want us to stand to our feet here today. So because Jesus is king, because he is the mighty God, because he is the valiant warrior, because of what happened in that first advent over 2,000 years ago, he now offers us, his people, a way. And I want you to hear this. He offers us as king, as the mighty God, a way for us to be free from every unclean spirit that keeps us bound. Because he is king, he offers us a way to experience order, to experience purpose, to experience alignment in the midst of our chaos. Because Jesus is king, the mighty God, he offers us a way to experience eternal resurrection life where the fear of death has no more power on us. If God is for us, who can be against us? So here's the one big closing idea for you here this morning before we go to prayer. Because Jesus is king, captivity is not your destiny. That's the promise from the words of Isaiah. Oh, you're captive now. Captivity's coming. Exile is inevitable. Suffering and hardship is on the horizon. But there is a light that goes beyond the darkness. The darkness will cease. And the light of God will come. And so captivity is not our destiny. Beloved, captivity is not your destiny. When Jesus becomes king of your life, he desires to liberate you and set you free from every oppressive, unclean spirit. He desires to bring order into the chaos of your world. And he desires to give you a hope that goes so much beyond death, suffering, hardship, captivity, is not your destiny. So I want to invite the prayer team to come this morning. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you're here because a family member invited you or because it's Christmas season, you said, hey, it's Christmas season. I should start going to church because we know that happens. But for whatever reason that you might be here today, And you're sitting there in that pew and you're wondering, how can I experience this? I hear about hope, but in my life I have no hope. I hear about order, but in my life it's full of chaos. 
I want to encourage you, you can experience this by making a conscious decision where you say, you know what, today from this day forward, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I want to surrender over to his lordship. I want Jesus to be king. I want to experience his forgiveness and his healing for my life. I want the shalom of God to come into my world. And so when I'm done praying, if you would like to pray a prayer where you make Jesus Lord of your life, the truth is he's Lord. It's just whether you surrender over to that lordship. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you and help you understand what that means from this day forward. Does it mean that your life will never experience suffering? No. Does it mean that you'll be void of any hardship? Absolutely not. But it does mean you can have a joy that cannot be taken even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of death. You can know this ain't the end. This ain't the end. This is not the end. There's a light that shines beyond the darkness. Maybe you're here this morning and you just know there are some things that are keeping you bound up. I'm going to go hard after this in the new year. I want to see the people of God free. I want to see the people of God set free, liberated, not bound to the sin of this world, not entangled with that stuff. I want to see us stepping into our destiny. And it's not captivity. So maybe you're here and you need prayer for that. We would love to invite you to pray. But would you put your hands out in a posture of receptivity here today as I pray closure over us. So Father, we thank you for your word that is timeless and true. Thank you for your spirit that is here. Thank you for the promise that you gave the children of Israel 700 years prior to the coming of Christ that gave them just a glimmer of hope. Yes, days are coming that are going to be difficult and challenging, but there is light beyond the darkness. There is one who is coming, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, who will establish an eternal kingdom. And I pray that the truths of your word would resonate deeply in our hearts and our lives here this morning that you still desire to bring order to the chaos. You still desire to liberate your people from sin and to give us the hope of resurrection life, even in the here and now. I pray for anyone that does not know you, that your Holy Spirit right now would do a work to call them to repentance, to call them towards your kingdom, and that they would respond in faith. Now, Lord, I declare your goodness and your blessing and your favor over your people today. You have been so generous to us. Help us in this season to be a radically generous people to those around us, and especially to those that are in need. Because we belong to a good kingdom with a great king, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Bless you. Have an incredible week. If you want prayer, we'll be up here at the front. We'll see you again soon.